mica, one, one. All right. Oops. So let me get over here with you. <clears throat> We're traveling through the books of the Bible. Mica, mica, mica. Also, again, I know I, I sent it out in the text, but any, uh, any strong, strapping young lads who want to give maybe 15, 20 minutes right after the service, I want to just drive over to Kathy Mazur's house nearby. She's about five minutes away, and we just got to get a couple of bulk items, two bulk items out of her house on the street for her because she's getting ready to sell that house, so she's got to get some stuff out. So if anybody could help me, uh, just, again, I think it's, it's two items. If we got a few arms, it'll be like 15 minutes, so let me know at the end of the service. Um, see, Micah 1 1. Where's Micah again? Micah's in the Old Testament. Um, I start flipping and I'm not really paying attention to what I'm doing. Uh, seven chapters, 105 verses, 3,152 words. Micah 1 1 says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Morishite, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So the author is Micah. The year is about, uh, the book spans about 750 to 710 B.C. Those are Usher's dates, you know, they're a good barometer. Um, not much is known of Micah beyond this verse. We know he belonged from his birthplace to the southern tribe of Judah. Um, he preached, if you notice the end of the verse, he preached to which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So he preached to the north, Samaria, that was the capital of the north, and he preached to Jerusalem, that was the capital of the south. So if you look at those dates, he probably witnessed the northern tribes getting carried into captivity under Assyria, because that happened in 721 B.C. So he's preaching to the north, and he's probably watched the north get overrun by the Assyrians, which is, if you think about how dramatic that must have been. He's a contemporary of Isaiah. In fact, um, if you read Isaiah 1.1, you'll see it's almost the same as Micah 1.1. And uh, Isaiah is probably at least 10 years before Micah, but there's a great overlap between Micah and Isaiah. And there are so many similarities between the two, between the book of Micah and the book of Isaiah, that a lot of the scoffers and so-called scholars think they copied each other. Like that somebody like forged the books. That's how close they are, which we know is nonsense because the Bible says out of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. So God sometimes gives two witnesses like Matthew and Mark or Isaiah and, and Micah that might say the same things. Uh, Isaiah seemed to minister to the court, to the, you know, the higher class, and Micah seemed more inclined for the commoners. Um, and though he was a countryman, Micah preached principally to the cities. If you read Micah 6, 9, it says, The Lord's voice crieth unto the city, because he preached a lot to the cities. Uh, let's look at uh, Micah chapter 7. Be careful you don't flip too far. You end up in the New Testament. Okay, there's hope. All right, there's hope. Uh, his name means, who is like Jehovah? Micah. Who is like Jehovah? That's a good name, right? Who is like Jehovah? The answer is nobody. Um, and it really looks like when you study his life, it looks like God was everything to this man. It looks like he really had a heart for God and a consecration for God. Look at the end of the book in Micah 7:18. He ends the book with this blessed exclamation about God's character. 
I mean, look at this exclamation. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. I mean, that's such a great exclamation about God's character. It's like he gets to the end of this book and he kind of says, God, there is nobody like you. Amen? You ever get to that place? And if you go to Micah chapter 3, he speaks a little bit about himself. And he says in Micah chapter 3, he says, um, verse 8, speaking about himself, but truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord, that's good, and of judgment and of might to declare unto Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So he walked in the Spirit and power of the Lord. He seemed to really brag on his God. This is a guy, this, I say that, you know, joking. This is a guy, this is a guy, you know. I got a guy, right? This is a, this is a prophet that seemed to, God was everything to him. It just seems like he was everything to him. It's a good lesson. I wonder, is God everything to me? Could I say, truly, I am full of the Spirit, you know, I'm full of, of power by the Spirit of the Lord and not full of myself most of the time. So he's a good example. Now go to Jeremiah 26. Let me show you something. If you were an author of a book, I guess the greatest thing to happen to you would be quoted by somebody else. And... There are three notable occasions where Micah was quoted. Here's the first one. Jeremiah 26, look at verse 18. Now they're talking about killing Jeremiah. They want to, they, people want to execute him. You know why they want to execute him? They think he's an enemy of the state. They think Jeremiah is... Because Jeremiah is saying, look guys... Babylon's coming, you can't escape, don't go to Egypt, God's going to send his hammer, you've sinned against him, just stay here, he'll get you through it. And, and, it's a, and, and the people are turning on him and saying, you're an enemy of the state. Don't think that's too far away. Because you and I keep crying judgment, judgment, judgment. There's people that are saying, you Christians, you Bible believers, you people think and believe in a literal Jesus Christ coming to topple the kingdoms of the world? You're a domestic terrorist. You say, that couldn't happen. The documents were leaked a few years ago. They had us on the list. Pro-lifers, Christians, anybody that's premillennial, Bible-believing, believer in a literal return of Jesus Christ to this earth, they threw us on a list and said, you're a domestic terrorist. That's not conspiracy. That's fact. It happened in Jeremiah. It happened at the end of the kingdom of Judah. And if we're following that trail, then those of us that stand for righteousness, there will be a minority. And those of us that have a broken heart, Jeremiah didn't preach out of anger. He said, my eyes run down with rivers of waters. He cried when they said, when Jesus said, whom do men say that I am? They said, some say you're Jeremiah. Why? Because he was weeping like Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. So Jeremiah wasn't up there like, oh, God's going to get you. No, he cried with a timber in his voice saying, repent, my people, repent. Repent, O Israel, repent, O Judah. And they wanted to lock him up and throw him in a pit and kill him. You know, that's a good lesson for us. Even though we might have a hard message, there should be some compassion in our voice. There might even be a tear in our eye. It should never be anger at them. It should never be. I mean, there is a rebuke, I know. There's a time to, to be sharp, and the Bible says rebuke them sharply. But a lot of those things are, I'm not saying this to, it's self-serving, but a lot of those things are in the pastoral epistles that you're supposed to say to Christians that aren't living right. 
When you're out there with the lost world, you're not supposed to be gritting your teeth at them and spitting and foaming at the mouth and shaking your fist at them. It should be, yes, repent, America. Repent, America. Repent, America. But it's born out of a heart that's broken. Micah was like that. Jeremiah was like that. And they're getting ready to kill Jeremiah. And some of the elders rise up and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Just, Just stop the press for a second. And they say in verse 18, Micah, the Morathite, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spake to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of a forest. So, and they say, did Hezekiah try to kill him? Right, so they're defending Jeremiah here by saying, Hey, Micah preached pretty bloody murder to these people. He preached judgment, and Hezekiah didn't try to kill him. So that's quoting Micah 3.12, if you want to cross-reference. Now go to Matthew chapter 2. That's a key moment there. How about Matthew chapter 2? Here's another key moment. Verse number 5. The wise men, they quoted Micah when they arrived in Jerusalem, right? They said unto him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. There he is, quote Micah 5, 2, one of the greatest prophecies of the Lord's, uh, Lord's first coming. How about Matthew chapter 10? Here's a third one. Matthew chapter 10, verse 35. He's sending out, Jesus Christ is sending out his 12 disciples. He's quoting Micah 6, 6, when he says in Matthew 10, 35, For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. That's right out of Micah. That's, that's a quote out of Micah. So key, key, some keys there. Right? Uh, some key verses are on your sheet. Some key words here. We'll talk about that at the end. Desolate, desolation, gather, assemble. Key message, God's hatred of injustice, His rejection of ritual, and His delight in pardoning. And Jesus Christ is pictured as the coming ruler in Israel. So you'll notice on your sheet there, if you're watching online, you notice in the notes section, that you could break the book down a couple of different ways. You could break it down, chapters 1 to 3 is uh, God denouncing his people. Chapters 4 to 7 is God consoling his people. Or you could break it down the other way. Chapters 1 to 3 is God's witness to his people. Chapters 4 and 5, God's consolation to his people. Chapter 6, God pleading with his people. And chapter 7, God pardoning his people. I think they're both pretty good, so I threw them both in. So you got two ways to break the book down. So let's get into now some of these uh, pictures. we got three pictures that we want to talk about. The plowed field, the great prophecy, and the Lord's rod. So let's, uh, let's get into this. Let's go to Micah chapter 3. How are we doing? You with me tonight? Amen. All right. Amen. Micah chapter 3. Number one, verse, first big picture. The plowed field and the established kingdom. Because sometimes you got to be plowed before you get established. That's not a fun message, but a very true message. Sometimes God has to get in there and turn the clods over to kind of make the soil fruitful again. 
And the Micah chapter 3, verse 9 is a prophecy regarding the plowing of Jerusalem. He says, Hear this, I pray you, ye heads of the house of Jacob and princes of the house of Israel that abhor judgment and pervert all equity. They build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. The heads thereof judge for reward and the priests thereof teach for hire and the prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? What blasphemy. None evil can come upon us. Wow. God says, you're doing all this wickedness, leaders. You're doing all this wickedness, preachers. You're doing all this wickedness, pastors. You're doing all this wickedness, priests. And you're going to tell me that you're God's people, that God's with you? You know what he says in verse 12? Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field. And just like the world, the field is the world, right? So he says, I'm going to run you through just like I run the world through. And Jerusalem shall become heaps and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. That's a great prophecy. That's a scary prophecy. You know what he does right in the next verse? Right in the next, that's heavy stuff. He just dropped a bomb on them. I'm going to plow you. I'm going to turn you over. They knew what a plow was. You might not know what a plow was. I had to look up plowing, right? I know what it is. Like they make, the, you know, they make the, the, the furrows in the ground. I know. But I wanted to know more about it, so I was reading about it. But they knew what it was like. They knew what it meant to plow. Someone's going to come in and rip that soil up, turn that soil over, turn those clods over, rip that stuff apart. And look what happens in the next verse. The next verse is the future glory and prestige of Jerusalem. The previous few verses is the plowing of Jerusalem and then the prestige of Jerusalem. The, the, the glory that God's going to give them, the, 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 the elevation and the exaltation they're going to have in the coming millennium. But in the last days, it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains. And it shall be exalted above the hills. Mountains are kingdoms in the Bible. And the people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. For all people will walk every one in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, second coming, saith the Lord, will I assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted, and I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation, and the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth, even forever. Wow. That's quite a turn from somebody getting plowed. Uh, verse 8. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion. Remember when you were the head of the nations? You're going to be the head again, he's saying. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why dost thou cry out aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perished? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There shalt thou be 
delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. Now, now that's a great promise. Keep going. He's saying, hey, Israel, you're going to feel some pain. Keep going. Now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. Sometimes the Lord has to plow you to plant something beautiful in you. And he's saying right there in those verses, I know you got some pangs. You like that woman like, oh, you know, you're kind of going through those labor pains now, Israel. You know, you, that, that nation is ready to be born and it looks so painful and it looks like there's no end in sight. And God says, they don't understand how I work. And the nations are circling around you and like, we're going to get her. We're going to get her. We're going to get her. And God says, I'm going to thresh them. I'm going to whack them. Right? That's the, the Italian term. I'm going to whack them. Right? And you read in Daniel chapter 2, when you see that image of all those Gentiles, that stone strikes the feet. And it says it's like the summer, I think the summer, am I messing up? Go to Daniel chapter 2. Let me hold, hold your place. Don't go. Don't, you don't go. I'll just flip there. I want to make sure I don't misquote this. Uh, uh, hold your place there. Daniel 2. Um, I know it's there. Uh, maybe it's not there. Maybe I'm thinking of some place. Wait. No, maybe it's not there. I know it's somewhere there. Uh, I don't know where. Yeah, where is that? Oh, is it? See, I always give up. I always give up. Right? <laughs> don't give up. You can do it. Right? Then was the iron and the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, right? At the end of those kingdoms, that Lord Jesus Christ comes back, and what did they say when Jesus showed up? What was John the Baptist saying? And he will throughly purge his floor, right? I think he says that in Matthew chapter 3, I think that is. Let me just, I'm just, I'm spitballing here a little bit. Matthew chapter 3, um, speaking about the Lord coming back, right down there in verse number, whoops, 12, right? Whose fan is in his hand, and he will throughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That stone's going to come that's cut out without hands. It's going to strike that last kingdom. It's going to thresh them. It's going to whack them. That's what he's saying. If you go back to Micah 3.12, he's saying they're going to be like sheaves on the floor. They're mighty with their tanks and their ballistic missiles and their surface-to-air defenses and their nukes and all the stuff they got, their harp technology, all that stuff they think they got. They think they control the weather. They think they can whack this one. They're going to circle Israel. And God says, I'm going to bust them like wheat on a millstone. Whosoever falleth on this stone shall be ground to powder. If you fall on the stone now, you'll be broken. That's a good thing. A broken and contrite, how oh God, that will not despise. But if you don't fall on the stone now, the stone falls on you and grinds them to powder. Imagine that. Pulverize them, right? Thresh them. Um, plowing, and you can't grow anything good in a field without first plowing the field. Plowing is a process which removes the horizontal clods from the soil, the stuff that I guess is in the way. The clods then get rolled over and destroyed. 
in order to bring the soil back to its original phase, helping the passage of organic substances, providing space and nutrients to the new crop. So God said, I got to come here and plow you because I got to get some stuff up. I got to destroy some things so that the nutrients, and you can go back to being fruitful, O Israel. Micah 4.13. Now watch the promise. He says now to Israel, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. For I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hoofs brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. You see what's happening? He's telling them earlier, I'm going to have to plow you, and then I'm going to let you thresh them. That's pretty intense. So if the Lord can kind of get the wicked out of you, He'll let you take some stuff out on the wicked in that day. You think, you think the Lord is unjust to let them all just walk all over you? Vengeance is mine, saith my God. Amen. It's not your vengeance. We're not supposed to be vengeful. But the Lord's up to, you think you're going to do that to my children? And I'm not gonna, you're not going to get yours? God is just. God is faithful. And God is not mocked. So that's the plowed field. All right? Let's go now to uh, Micah chapter 5, which should be in the neighborhood. And let's look at the great prophecy. One of the greatest prophecies of our coming Messiah is here in Micah chapter 5. We'll see who he is and what he'll be like right here in Micah 5. Written a thousand years before, about 700 years before Christ, I should say, sorry. Let's look at Micah 5.1. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops, He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. Verse 2. But thou, O Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old. Please note, your Bible better say this, from everlasting. A King James Bible says, from everlasting. I hope your Bible says he's from everlasting. Notice number one, he shall be ruler. That's the first thing about the Messiah. He shall be ruler. Remember, that's what Isaiah talked about too, right? Upon his shoulder, right? The government shall be upon his shoulder. They have a similar prophecy. They're contemporaries. So remember what the Old Testament was about. A king. The whole Bible is about a king and his kingdom, but the Old Testament is very political. It's about somebody ruling the nation of Israel, and that's Jesus Christ. So notice in verse number 1 that like a lot of Old Testament prophets, Micah is seeing both advents at one time. Because he's talking about troops. He's talking about stuff that's very much about the second coming, but then there's a prophecy of the first coming when he was born in Bethlehem. Because a lot of the prophets, they saw those two comings almost happening like this, they didn't see the church in the middle. They saw like two peaks of a mountain, and then you realize there was a valley between them. So a lot of times you see the prophecies look like they're overlapping because they're, they don't see the space. Notice verse 2. He actually, I mean how precise this is. He actually identifies the birthplace of Christ, right? Actually identify where he's going to be born, Bethlehem. You know why? Because he's the son of David. You know where David's from? Bethlehem. Bethlehem Ephrathah, meaning fruitful, right? Fruitfulness. 
Notice also at the end of verse 2, the great reminder on the deity of Christ, that this Messiah that would come would be God manifest in the flesh. He shall be from of old, from everlasting. That's preserved in a King James Bible. It's messed around with with a lot of modern Bibles. For example, let's just name a few and pick some fights. The ESV, very popular version among our Reformed friends. Uh, the ESV says, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Well, Pharaoh was from ancient days. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was from ancient days. Hammurabi was from ancient days. That's not everlasting. How about the NIV, the not inspired version? Um, the NIV says, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. See, why do you pick a fight like that? Because we've got to shake ourselves a little bit. Amen. I didn't do that. I didn't write that. Why are they maligning my Savior? Why are they you say, but it shows the deity of Christ in other places. But why would you dip it in one place? Wouldn't you want the Bible that holds it up and preserves it in all the places? Amen. Right? Wouldn't you want to, don't you think God's Bible would magnify God's Son the most? Amen. Hey, here's a Bible. I could see, you know, you know uh, let's say, Mario Jr. writes a book. And, oh, no, no. Mario writes a book about his son, Mario. And I got the book. And I, I, I make some changes to it. And Ryan gets a copy. He makes some changes to it, you know. And Chris gets a hold of it. He makes a whole bunch of changes to it. Right? We just gotta, and, you know, and, 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 and Mario, he's like, that's not the book I wrote. I said some glowing things about my son in there. I really exalted him in there. Oh, no, I got some of that in there. I saved some of it, but I like how I changed it over here. It's a better rendering. The oldest and most reliable manuscript said it this way. Hey, no, 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 no. He says, I wanted to magnify my son in that book. That book's about my son. Why would you dip the colors? Why would you want a Bible that dips the colors or dulls the shine on Jesus' title in one verse? Let alone a bunch of verses. Micah 5.2, Daniel 3.25, you know, 1 Timothy 3.16. We can go around the verses where the colors are dipped on the deity of Christ. Who would want the deity of Christ to be maligned. You think the Holy Spirit, I'll get back to this in a second, you think the Holy Spirit was behind a translation that dulled the shine on the Son of God and made Him look like less than the God in the flesh? Isn't it the Antichrist that is going to purport that Christ didn't come in the flesh? Wouldn't the spirit of Antichrist be behind questioning whether Jesus Christ was the God-man in the flesh? Because the Antichrist is going to say, I'm God in the flesh. I'm the Christ. Well, it's going to be the devil incarnate. And isn't the devil the one that wants to be like the Most High? Think. Think. You're up against a force that is more evil than the most maniacal people in Washington, and the most wicked people in the Bilderbergs, like all these people that you're afraid of and stuff like that. You're just dealing with a mind and a spirit that is the most evil, maniacal, subtle creature that was ever in the, in the universe. Don't give him the benefit of the doubt. Right? If the Bible you're looking at is dipping the color somewhere, somebody's behind that. And it's not the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. How about this one? Uh, that was not in the notes. Okay, is that okay, Dad? The New Living Translation. Whose origins are in the distant past. My grandmother's in the distant past. <laughs> All right? Um, 
Can I tell you, Jesus Christ is not just old. He's God. It's a big difference. Ancient, I feel ancient, right? Um, Like I said, uh, Attila the Hun's ancient, right? But Jesus Christ is God. Because Psalm 90 verse 2 says, From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. The one that's from everlasting is God. Not, you know, Genghis Khan or, you know, Alexander the Great. All right? uh, Micah 5.3. How's everybody doing at home? Okay. And if you're at home and you don't own a King James Bible, you could jump in that chat or you could call us or email us. The information's on the site and say, I want a King James Bible. We'll send you one for free. You just got to read it. We'll send you one for free, and you can even, I'll even send you if you want. Hey, everybody at home, I'll send you an envelope to send me back the old one, and I'll burn it in my bonfire, right? right? Remember Eli and I, we went to the, the, to the prisons years ago and ministered to the prisons, and we had a riot there one time because our pastor, Mike, we had a limited time to go to the prisons because they were going to close it, and he said, you know, the only thing we're going to preach about is we're going to preach on the King James Bible because if we can leave these guys in chapel on the King James Bible, they've got the ammunition, so... He preached a couple of messages, and then he went to Paraguay for a missions trip for, many, for a couple, couple of weeks, right? And then me, Eli, Frank Termina, who's in heaven now, brother Mike Damiano. Uh, was that all of us, right? That's it. We went in there. And we preached every message almost. It was on the King James Bible. And there were some nights that we were teaching on the King James Bible. We thought we were going to have a riot. They were screaming. They weren't screaming at us. They were screaming at the books in their lap. And they'd get up, and we'd be fellowshipping afterwards. And this one guy, Richard, this short, remember Richard? This short little guy, Richard, he goes, hey, Brother Bat. He goes, there was another guy that was volunteering. His name was Martin. He was an old guy, an ex-cop. He was a guy that was, he helped arrest the son of Sam, I think, right? He was on, on the case that arrested David Berkowitz. And this guy was a Christian, but he had the, a different Bible version. And I wasn't going to say anything. He just sat there. We had a good fellowship with him. But we're having this riot, and these guys are going crazy. They're, they're chanting, burn it burn it. I'm just, I'm sharing what I'm sharing here. And these guys are real guys from the street. They're going, they're trying to pull a number of us. Burn it, burn it. So this guy, Richard, about this high, this high, doing 22 to life, he comes up to me and he's got Martin's Bible. He's got the old guy's Bible. The other Christian that was sitting in there, the ex-cop who was sitting in there, he's got his NIV. And he goes, we got Martin's Bible. I said, I thought you gave up a life of crime. (laughs) He goes, he goes, Burn this on the outside. And this is what he said to me. I'll never forget. He goes, you take care of the outside. We'll take care of it in here. (laughs) I said, okay. But I think a few nights we went home with some Bibles. They wanted us to throw them out and get rid of them. Um, Those guys were honest. Uh, 5-3. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. I want you to notice number two, not that he'll be ruler, that's number one, but he shall be great. He shall be grand and glorious ruler over all the earth. Notice in verse three, Israel may abide the birth pangs of the tribulation. She may have to deal with those things. But please notice in verse number four, that she's going to get her shepherd back. See that? He shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, right? They're going to get their shepherd back to feed Israel when Jesus comes. And notice in verse number five, and this man shall be the peace. Amen. When the Assyrian shall come into our land 
and when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. Please notice that he shall be the peace. He's going to be a conquering king who vanquishes Israel's enemies. Please notice in verse 6. And they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod in the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh into our land and when he treadeth within our borders. Please notice that Jesus Christ will destroy, quote, the Assyrian. In your Bible, that is a title for the Antichrist, the Assyrian. And he's going he's to destroy him. He's going to bruise his head. Verse 7. And the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people as a dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass that tarrieth not for man, nor waiteth for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people, as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who, if he go through, both treadeth down and teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. Thine hand shall be lifted up upon thine adversaries, and all that enemies shall be cut off. Jacob will be prince among the nations yet again. Now watch 10 to 15. In 10 to 15, you're going to see when this conquering king comes, what is he going to destroy? What is he going to get rid of? What is he going to vanquish and just disannul? Ready? Verse number 10. And it shall come to pass in that day, second coming, saith the Lord, that I will cut off thy horses out of the midst of thee, and I will destroy thy chariots. Please notice, number one, he's going to destroy the horses and the chariots. You know why? Because he needs no army. He goes, I don't need your your army, and your army can't stop me. I'm going to wipe them all out. When Jesus Christ comes back, Israel's not going to be, not going to need the Iron Dome anymore. Okay? They're going to have Jesus Christ ruling with a rod of iron. So they're not going to need some iron dome. Nobody's going to raise a finger against Israel. He says, I'm going to get rid of all those chariots and horses. Verse 11, And I will cut off the cities of thy land and throw down all thy strongholds. He's not going to need their cities because he needs no strongholds. He's not going to need little encampments anywhere. He's going to be able to rule with a rod and iron from Jerusalem with some special people helping him. That's another story. Verse 12, And I will cut off witchcrafts out of thine hand. And thou shalt have no more soothsayers. He's going to cut off and destroy the witchcrafts and the soothsayers because he doesn't need the forces of darkness. Like the lady across the street might have a little shop set up, you know, five dollars, you know, you know, give me five. Okay. You know, let me read your line. Here's a line. You must be born again. How about that? Right. Every time I pass those places, I curse them in the name of the Lord. I say, Lord, curse that place. That's not mean spirited. That's Bible. Curse that place, curse that spirit, put a church there, put a, put a Wawa there, I don't care, but, but uh, curse that place, shut that place. Oh, that's, 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 not, that's not capitalistic. No, it's not. That's being a Christian. <laughs> Pronounce judgment, Lord, topple that place. That's an unclean spirit luring people away from the true God and the Holy Spirit. You don't want to point the finger and pray and say, Lord, destroy that place, topple that place, save that woman's soul or that guy's soul. The Antichrist is going to cause craft to increase that's not basket weaving that's witchcraft he's going to give rise to that stuff it's happening now all over the place now crazy stuff crazy stuff statue they put outside of what is it outside of St. Peter's the Colosseum the statue of Moloch 
It's outside the Colosseum. Why not? I mean, you know, the false god that we, they sacrificed babies to in the Old Testament. That seems like a nice tourist attraction. You see, your stuff is like hiding in plain sight. It's like right there. Um, it's crazy stuff, crazy stuff. As Brother Maurice would say, brother, it's crazy. Uh, verse 13. Thy graven image also will I cut off. He's going to cut off the graven images because he has no rival. No statue is going to represent him. No graven image can rival him. That's why he said don't make them. Especially don't bow down to them. That'll put some religions out of business. Uh, verse 14. That's why a certain church gets rid of the second commandment and splits the tenth. Who could that be? <laughs> Who could that be, Papa? All right. Who could that be? Right? There's a church that splits the second commandment, takes, gets rid of the second commandment that says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, nor bow down thyself thereto. I didn't, you look, don't look, don't get mad at me. I didn't do it. They did it. They took out the second commandment and split the ten that said, Don't covet thy neighbor's goods and don't covet thy neighbor's wife. They made two commandments out of ten. They took out number two. You say, why would they do that? Have you been to St. Peter's Basilica? I have. There's a lot of graven images in there. <laughs> have you been to your most recent, you know, cathedral? There's a lot of graven images in there. And then out of Jesus, they're of someone they call Mary, someone they call Joseph. And I went to St. Peter's many years ago on my honeymoon, and there was graven image after graven images of Pope, Pope, Pope this, Pope that, and they're all doing this everywhere, you know. And uh, I watched people flock the Pieta, flock it, right? Just like all around it, just, oh my goodness, that was, that's a graven image. Right? We're not supposed to make those. God said, I'll get rid of them when I come back, if there's any laying around. Um, because he taught, and he says in verse 14, no grows. Man, I'm making a lot of enemies tonight. I might as well just, just re retire after this one, right? Probably got 17 strikes. Um, no groves, because I don't tolerate, he says, any false worship or paganism. All right, so that's, that's the great prophecy. Now let's go to Micah 5.1, and let me finish this up here in terms of our pictures with the Lord's rod. We did the great prophecy, and now the Lord's rod. All right? The, the importance of God's rod... The rod is the instrument of a shepherd. And it appears three times in the book of Micah. And each one is a different importance for God's rod. The first one is in Micah 5.1. It says, Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. That's a picture of the Savior being smitten with the rod. They're going to smite the rod of Israel upon the cheek. What does the Bible say? That with his stripes we are healed. He was smitten for our affliction, right? We did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The first rod we see in Micah is the judge of Israel being smitten with the rod. Why? So that we could be saved. Second one is in Micah 6, 9. The Lord's voice crieth unto the city, and the man of wisdom shall see thy name, and hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it. You know what Mike is pronouncing? He's saying, judgment, 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 and that judgment is the rod of God. So the first rod is the Savior. The second rod is the sinner, because the sinner is going to bear the rod as punishment from the Lord. He says, the punishment is coming for your sins. 
In fact, he likens Israel to a child in the tribulation that has to get chastened with a rod like a father chastens his son with a rod. He says, the, the rod is coming. The rod is coming. And then in Micah 7.4 is the last one. No, 7.14. I'm sorry, 7.14. Feed thy people with thy rod, the flock of thine heritage, which dwell solitarily in the wood. In the midst of Carmel, let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. So the third one is the saint is directed to green pasture by the shepherd's rod. If you've got any preacher in you, you've got a whole message right there. Number one, the rod that smote the Savior. Number two, the rod that smites the sinner. And number three, the rod that directs the saint. The rod is important to God. He's our great shepherd, right? The Lord is my shepherd. He leadeth me to thy will, right? Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leadeth me to sign the still waters. I'm going to mess this up. My brain is French fried. Um, thy rod and thy staff, they come for me. That's what I want, right? He brings us those pastures, and his rod comforts me. The Lord is my shepherd. All right, I got two big ideas in the book of Micah, and that will be done, all right? Go to Micah chapter 1. We'll stay in Micah for these big ideas. Some themes or some big ideas in the book of Micah. First big idea. The Lord wants you to hear Him when He talks to you. Isn't that profound? <laughs> the Lord wants you to hear Him when He talks to you. Lend an ear, right? Don't stop your ear. The Bible says you stop your ear. God says you'll be in a lot of trouble. He says, hear me, hear me, hear me. Because hearing is like another word in your Bible, hearkening. If you're really giving a hearing, you're considering what's being said and going to do something about it. Like a hearing in court, right? It's not just, let's listen. No, it's like we're going to hear arguments and do something about it. So when you hear God, when you give God a hearing, you listen to act on it. The word hear appears nine times in the book of Micah. Nine is the number of fruit bearing. There is no fruit if you're unwilling to hear. If you don't hear, what's God going to do? His voice is crying, but if you don't hear, you don't want to hear, what's going to happen? Remember, it's faith is what pleases God, and the last time I checked, faith cometh by hearing. So you can't get any faith and increase your faith if you're not willing to hear. Micah 1, 2. Hear, all ye people. The Lord wants everybody to hear. That's how he starts the book. So much for Calvinism, right? He didn't just want the ones that were specially predestined to hear. To hear, He says, I want everybody to hear. I want all of you to listen to me. Chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, Here I pray you, O heads of Jacob, and ye princes of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know judgment? The Lord wants the leaders to hear. Hello. The Lord wants the leaders to hear. Hello. The Lord wants the leaders to hear. He says, I want the leaders of the nation to hear. You guys should know better. And if the Lord could preach that message to America, he'd walk right down Pennsylvania Avenue. He'd say, hear, oh, you leaders. Hear, oh, you heads. Aren't you supposed to know what I say? How come a bunch of doofuses like us, I'll speak for myself, no more Bible than these people are supposed to be representing the laws of the land? When the original laws of the land were based on biblical principles. Amen. 
Micah 6.2. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. The Lord even commands the earth to bear witness to his words. That's how powerful he is. He's, hey, earth, I even want you to listen to me, because i got a controversy with my people, and you're going to bear witness one day against them. Like in Deuteronomy 30, right? He says, I call heaven and earth to record against you this day. Here he is saying, listen, O earth, you listen. When I say rain, you rain. When I say quake, you quake. When I say blow the wind, you blow the wind. But my people don't listen. Rocks listen. If you hold your peace, he says, the rocks will cry out. When I come back, the trees will clap their hands. You think that's literal? I think that's literal. It says they're going to sing. Nature's going to sing like it sang in the Garden of Eden. It's going to sing. It's going to hum. It's going to buzz, right? And uh, he says, you guys listen. You're a testimony against my people because my people got a brain. They got faculties. They got my oracles, and they don't listen when I say do anything. You listen. You line up the bird. I say, go fly south for the winter. They fly south for the winter. You say, be hot over here in the summer. You're hot over here in the summer, right during the Monmouth County Fair. (laughs) My people don't listen. So you're a witness against them. Will you give God a hearing when He speaks to you? Does He deserve our attention? And then the second thing is this. Second big idea. Okay, number two. Go to Micah chapter 6. Oh, we're right there. Good. It's like I planned it. All right. The Lord is looking on your heart. And that's what He really wants from His people. Proverbs 23, 26. My son, give me thine heart. And let thine eyes observe my ways. Right? Micah 6, 6 and 6, 7. I want you to notice that one great theme of the book is that the Lord rejects all the outward forms of worship. He rejects ritualism. He hates it. Makes him sick. And Isaiah, he says, I cannot away with. Just get it out of my sight because your hands are full of blood. I can't take these sacrifices you keep bringing to me with a wrong heart. And uh, in Micah, he says in 6, Micah 6, the people go, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Right? So the people are saying, what do I do to impress God? Well, look how God shoots down what they want to bring. Shall I bring the burnt offerings? Are you impressed that I keep the law, God? you impressed that I'm still bringing the burnt offerings, God? Hey, look, God, I'm coming to church on, on, you know, on the day we have church. I got my King James Bible, like you said, to have a right Bible. I got all my doctrines lined up. I'm keeping the law. He says, are you keeping the law? God says, I'm not impressed with that. If your heart's not in it. Six, then he keeps going and says, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? He says, God, are you impressed with the quality of my sacrifice? Got these young, tender things for my flock. You know, they're perfect, they're pristine, and I'm going to bring them to you, God. God said, I'm not impressed with that. And I'm not impressed with the quality of your sacrifice if your heart's not right. Keep reading. Verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Okay, I'll impress him with the quantity of my sacrifice. Look how much money I give. Look how much time I spend. Look how many tracts I hand out. Look how many things I do. Look how much 
I volunteer. Look how much this. Look how much that. Look how much I'm singing. Look how much I'm praising. Look how much I'm doing. Blah, 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 blah. God says, I'm not impressed with that either. If it's with the wrong heart. Right? It's all about the heart. That doesn't mean you can sit on your lazy butt and say, well, God knows my heart. All right? That's why you need to repent because God does know your heart. But I'm saying, don't be like that Pharisee that said, oh, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And God wasn't listening to a word he said. He prayed thus with himself. God said, you enjoying that? Because I'm not listening. All right? So he's, he's made this grand oratory. Um, last one. He says, I lost my place. Uh, or with ten thousands of rivers of oil. Wow. How about an impossible sacrifice? God, what if I do something impossible for you? What if, I, what if I give my body to be burned? What if I lay my life down, lay my house down? I'm just going to give it all, God. Give it all away, God. I die for you, God. Yeah, would you live for him, though? God, if tomorrow, like Peter, right? Though all men forsake thee, I will not forsake thee. Yea, Lord, I die with you. God says, this night, you know. You're going to deny me three times, right? Because the ones that are usually like, I'll die for you, God, are not the ones that would live for him every day. So you want them this big, it doesn't have to be this big, impossible thing. It might be tomorrow, tonight, just give him your heart. What does he want? It's right there in verse number eight. He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. What does God want? Wants spiritual sacrifices. Wants things that are not out here, they're in here. You know what he wants? He wants you to be just like him. He said, how do I get that? I get that from verse 8. Number one, he wants you to do justly, like God the Father, who's always just. He wants you to love mercy, like God the Son, who said, I will have mercy. He wants you to walk humbly, like God the Holy Spirit who doesn't speak of himself, but only magnifies Christ. He wants you to be like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He wants you to be more like him every day. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God that wilt not despise. And if you and I can lay ourselves on the altar and ask God to make us more like him, the Lord would say, that's a sweet-smelling savor. That's what I really want. Give me your heart and let thine eyes observe my ways. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Thanks for being here.